I stayed with my head in a book. And so one of the women in the salon, I was eight years old and she said, um, and you, you'll see I often furrow, you know, my brow. She said, um, this child always looks so worried. She was talking about me like I wasn't there. And she said, what is this child so worried about? And, and I don't even know what book I was reading, you know, but I was very into it. And I looked up and I said, the world. And, and I was eight years old, you know? So I did feel this responsibility early on. And that is, has everything to do with the expectation my mother placed on me. Thank you for checking in to 10 Questions with NBC10 Boston, the podcast. I'm Kwani A. Lunis. In this episode, we talked to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who was in the Capitol building during the insurrection on January 6, 2021. She shares a little bit about her experience and explains why the Democrat majority-led Congress felt the responsibility to impeach former President Donald Trump for a second time. The Congresswoman then goes on to share some anecdotes from her childhood, her mother's influence on her life and career, and gives an update one year after her alopecia diagnosis. The first Black woman to represent Massachusetts in Congress, Representative Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us today. Of course, great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. I love the series. Thank you so much. I wanted to start and ask how you and your family have been since January 6th and how have you been doing overall? Yeah, I appreciate the question very much. Um, but, you know, honestly, this was just the most, um, this forced people to confront the threat of white supremacy who have been in denial about the threat that it poses to all American lives and our democracy. It's unfortunate that it took um, a white supremacist violent mob, an attempted coup, an insurrection coming all the way to the steps of the Capitol to interrupt the peaceful transfer of power for people to appreciate the threat that white supremacy is. And I want to make sure also that people understand as we keep talking about this national reckoning, that the reckoning needs to be just as much about white supremacy and ensuring that those who aided and abetted this insurrection are held accountable from Donald J. Trump to members of Congress um, to others. But it's not just about securing the Capitol and ensuring that a breach never occurs there like this. This is about securing our nation. So when people say that this is a moment of reckoning, that reckoning is as much about rooting out the evil and the scourge that is white supremacy as it is about um, dismantling systemic and structural racism for which white supremacy is a host of. But, you know, so many people have asked, you know, was I afraid? And I, I have to just tell people, you know, I am a, a black woman in America. I am a, a black woman living with alopecia in America. Simply how I show up in the world is disruptive for many people. And because of the, uh, the rearing uh, that I received, a parent being a child's first teacher, about my responsibility in the work of liberation of black folk and all other marginalized people, um, I am used to people attempting to intimidate um, and to threaten. And so certainly when you see people brandishing a Confederate flag 
and erecting a noose on the West Lawn of the Capitol, it is disturbing in the most ancestral of ways, but it is nothing new. And it's sad to, for you to have to even say that it's not a surprise to feel as though it is something that is so familiar to you. Right now, you are in the process of an unprecedented second part of an impeachment process. What has the second time around been like for you? I just cannot believe, you know, the, the times we find ourselves in as a nation and that I, I have the humbling honor in representing the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District at, at such an inflection point for our nation. Um, I certainly did not come to Congress to impeach a president and certainly not to do that twice. But this Democratic majority led Congress has done that twice. Um, I do believe that Donald J. Trump is culpable of many crimes um, and, and certainly more recently inciting an insurrection. And now the Senate must honor their oath and they must impeach him to bar him from ever running from public office again. This is as much about accountability as it is prevention. And I, I do wanna say that I am so very proud of the uh, House, the Democratic impeachment managers. Uh, they have just uh, been prepared and I think presented a definitive and compelling case um, about the role that Donald J. Trump played in perpetuating this big lie and um, emboldening this insurrection. So it, it, these are heady times. I never could have imagined. I mean, I came into Congress in the midst of a federal government shutdown. A year to the date of there, uh, that day, we were voting, um, or to my coming into Congress, we were voting in the affirmative on articles of impeachment. Weeks after that, I, we feared we might be on the precipice of war uh, in the Middle East. And, and then weeks after that, we found ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic. So these have been unprecedented times. And, you know, people ask me all the time if I'm growing cynical or weary. And my response is always the same. I don't have the luxury of being apathetic or, or growing weary. Um, I have to stand in the gap. People are depending on me. And so I, I'm so centered by and grounded by the responsibility of it all that um, I don't have the time. Minority leader Mitch McConnell has yet to decide whether or not he'll convict or acquit the pre uh, former President Trump. What do you think it will take for Republicans to actually decide to be on board with the Democratic Party and actually have a conviction? Well, you know, I don't put much stock in what the minority leader has to say. Uh, I'm thrilled that he is the minority leader. Um, so shout out to... Um, you know, the most marginalized, you know, black and brown and AAPI and indigenous and queer and disabled and young people who made this victory possible and Georgia showed out twice, uh, who made it possible for us to regain control of the Senate so that he is the minority leader. But I wanted to say, um, just challenge your, your frame there a little bit and say, it's not about minority leader McConnell um, getting on the same page and coming along to uh, where the Democrats are. This is about centering the American people. In all things, you know, uh, the Senate for the last year have been obstructionist to advancing a relief package that would truly meet the scale and scope of this crisis, um, mitigate the hurt and provide real relief to people. Um, you know, that Senate stood in the way of restoring the Voting Rights Act, of passing an infrastructure bill, 
of passing a bill to lower the cost of prescription drugs, of passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill, of passing the anti-lynching Emmett Till Bill. So they have repeatedly, um, the GOP, uh, proven themselves despite their characterization to be patriots and to put country above party. They have failed miserably. So um, there's a lot of shallow talk about unity, but there can be no unity without accountability. And moreover, what we need to be unified in is centering the American people and squarely addressing the hurt that they're experiencing both because of the global pandemic, the economic hardship that it has wrought, but also the weight of systemic and structural racism and white supremacy. So what is it gonna take for Mitch McConnell and his colleagues to become less callous, less cruel? Um, I don't know. I, one thing I know for sure is that this, our challenges are not about a deficit of resource. They are about a deficit of empathy. And so they will try to make it about um, scarcity of resource, but then not bat an eye at an infusion of billions of dollars to defense. And, and so we need to be unified in centering the American people and um, getting real relief to them uh, in the midst of, and for the duration of this crisis, which is why I continue to fight for $2,000 reoccurring survival checks, rent and mortgage cancellation, eviction and foreclosure moratoriums, extended and expanded unemployment benefits, um, and canceling student debt. Happy belated birthday to you. I'm not biased, even though February. Are you crying? I will February. Hey! <laughs> Shout out to all the Aquariuses. Come on, y'all. I, I said I wasn't going to derail it by us talking about it. We got Tiffany Cross, Oprah, Questlove. You know, there's so many others that, that I could name, but, you know, Aquarius Nation, rise up. All right. <laughs> I, see, I, I told my my coworkers I wasn't gonna derail it with February birthdays, but I knew I had to, and I knew yes. you understand that one. But I loved your birthday Instagram post because in that little caption, you did write how your mother had said that you were born in February because you were ordained to be a part of Black history, which you have done so many things, not even just in Black history, but I think history in this country overall. What was that process, like when you your mother told you that that was the reason why she thought you were born mm. in February. Well, first of all, I'm very humbled that you follow me on Instagram. <laughs> you know, because I know I'm officially in auntie status. Okay, so when I have the youngins paying attention, you know, I appreciate that. But you're a cool auntie. It seems like you're a cool auntie. Okay, all right, good, good. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> nothing like my mother was a Sagittarius. Um, so nothing like mama love, nothing like um, Sagittarian love, and nothing like, you know, being an only child. You know, I, um, my, my husband so often says that, you know, the difference in people's lives, you know, for those who have struggled to overcome things and those who have been able to, is that we are just ordinary people, um, you know, surrounded by and rooted in extraordinary love.
And uh, that was certainly true for me. So, you know, I, I felt very humbled that my mother felt that way. But if you knew my mother, may she rest in peace and power, you know, that was very consistent. You know, people, let me tell you something. My mother would be the only person right now, well, she would not be surprised at all by the trajectory that my life has gone. Um, she was the one saying early on, um, you know, you were going to be in Congress one day. She had dreams and visions for me that far exceeded and surpassed uh, my own aspirations uh, of self. She just had a great belief in me and in um, the gifts that she felt I had been, that I had entered the world with. And she was fiercely committed to nurturing uh, those gifts so that I could make a contribution. And that contribution for her was the full emancipation and liberation of Black folks and all marginalized people. You know, so I, I, it was heavy and it was heavy early on. And I'll share a story with you. It's interesting because I have so many of the inflection points in my life are from the salon. So it's very ironic that, you know, now I'm, you know, this alopecia queen here, but I distinctly remember sitting on telephone books uh, at, the, at the beauty salon in Chicago and holding my ear while my hair was being pressed, oh while, while also um, holding a book in one hand. I was a voracious reader and was often being reprimanded for reading while crossing the street and things like that. But I, I stayed with my head in a book. And so one of the women in the salon, I was eight years old, and she said, um, and you, you'll see I often furrow you know, my brow. She said, um, this child always looks so worried. She was talking about me like I wasn't there. And she said, what is this child so worried about? And, and I don't even know what book I was reading, you know, but I was very into it. And I looked up and I said, the world. And, and I was eight years old, you know? So I did feel this responsibility early on. And that is, has everything to do with the expectation my mother placed on me. Mm. And it seemed like people, even in your high school, you were voted most likely to be mayor of Chicago. So it seems like that mantle that you mentioned was something that people saw all along. You mentioned that moment in the hair salon, but was that? would you say that's a specific moment where you realized that politics was the world that you were gonna be in and, and really flourish in? Hmm. Okay, so I have to be transparent. I wanted to be a pediatrician. Okay. A doctor. And um, I could not excel in biology and science to save my life. And um, when I was about like 11, you know, I was a very serious child. Um, and I just sort of like did an internal audit of me. It's like, you are not doing well, you know, in science here. Um, but what do you do well right now? So I sort of just like took an audit of myself. Can you believe this? I'm like 11 years old <laughs> and, 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 um, and decided that, you know, I was going to uh, develop those, those skills that I would build myself up so that I could build my community up. So the other thing is growing up in Chicago, outside of the obvious role model that I had in my mother as a super voter and someone who was civic engaged and a community activist in her own right, she had been a tenants rights organizer for the Urban League of Chicago, one of many jobs that she held to, to, um, to make ends meet. I grew up in Chicago, so I had a female mayor in, um, in Jane Byrne. I had a, a black mayor, Harold Washington. That was the very first campaign I worked on at the age of 10 to elect the first black mayor in the city of Chicago. So I think that I had these aspirations um, to be of use 
Hmm. I hadn't defined it by, I will be in this position, but I knew the work that I wanted to do early on that was very crystallized for me. And I was very um, taken in by movement building and community building and electoral politics. So I knew that I wanted to be of use, that I wanted to be of service, that I wanted to um, advocate for the most marginalized. I had that sort of distilled and crystallized for me early on, but I didn't know what shape it would take. Mm -hmm. and, and for my peers who elected me most likely to be the mayor of Chicago, um, I think that was just by default of the fact that I was class president, student government president from like seventh grade all the way to 12th grade. I went to a 12 year pathway school. And I'm not sure if that is that I had, you know, uh, leadership merit or that I was just the most uh, outspoken and raised my hand the most. But either way, I had an undefeated record. And so I, I think that's really why they said that. It's so funny you just mentioned that because my next question was, were you one of those students that got into trouble for talking too much in class ever? <laughs> Oh my goodness, I have so many stories. That, I mean, okay, one story I'll share with you is um, <laughs> an Aquarian story, such an only child story. Uh, in kindergarten, and again, I went to this K through 12 pathway school, and and it's a very it was a very small school, and I distinctly remember you know walking to the principal's office and my knee socks kept falling and I kept stopping to pull my socks up. I arrived at the principal's office, you know, like six years old, seven years old, and um, I said, you know, I need to see the principal. Um, and uh, you know, he bent down and he said, you know, what brings you here? And I said, well, you know, my mother told me that it's wrong to lie, but my teacher told me on the first day that she was my teacher and she's still talking to all these other kids. Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, but I just, I say all that to say that I did, I, I did not suffer for expression. Um, and I had very strong opinions. I mean, of course, that is ridiculous. Like the teacher doesn't only belong to me. You're right. It's such an only child response. But um, so yes, I did uh, get in trouble, but I was also in an environment that really nurtured and developed um, what they considered to be my leadership skills. So I was a, you know, award-winning competitive debater uh, for the Midwest under the Junior Statesman of America. As I said, I was student government president, class president. Um, you know, involved in, in community, involved in my church. So I, you know, I, I checked a lot of those boxes in terms of the traditional trajectory for people who go into elected office and electoral politics. But I think, you know, honestly, my best leadership development and training was about the education I was getting in my household and church. You know, it was really, people like to um, define my leadership uh, origins uh, by the internships I did and the members that I worked for. But really my leadership training and development began on the storefront church on the South side of Chicago. You know, that's where I learned to actively listen. That's where I learned the power of testimony and storytelling. Um, that's where uh, community nurtured me and where I first learned to speak publicly. Even if it was just say, my chapter in verse for Easter Sunday. You know, and, and when I would forget it, and it was the shortest scripture in the Bible, Jesus wept, the mothers in the church would say, baby, that's okay. Yeah. You know, this was, this is really where my, um, I have to give credit to the training that I received um, in the church as well.
And it sounds like you've been busy from an early age. Obviously now you're probably way more busier than you were in high school. So what does self-care look like for you throughout the different chapters that you've had in your life, but specifically right now? Yeah, I appreciate your asking that because the, the thing that I did want to say um, is that the other education that I received um, was a wisdom that came from, you know, hardship and the many destabilizing factors in our household. My father's substance use disorder, his incarceration, um, you know, being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and later campus sexual assault and seeing a lot of those traumas, recognizing that they were intergenerational because those were also things uh, that my mother uh, had survived. And so I I wanna point those things out because that also underscores why the self-care piece is so important. You know, I'm no anomaly. And that's another thing that compelled me to do this work is when I had the realization that so many people in proximity to me were dealing with the same destabilizing factors. that we were living in an ecosystem that didn't support us thriving. And I th- and I used to think that the onus was on, on us, that it was a character flaw or something, um, or just a lot in life that we were destined to. Um, and it took me time to realize that no, we were living in the aftermath of discriminatory, short-sighted, uh, draconian policies. And that's where I really began to appreciate the power of policy. But I did just want to acknowledge um, those hardships, again, of which I'm not an anomaly. These are, you know, pervasive inequities, um, not inequities, but, um, you know, social ills. Um, and that's been a big part of my work and my ministry uh, as well. In terms of self-care, you know, I've had to be more intentional about informing joy and giving myself permission to pour into myself. And that is as much about healing from past traumas um, as it is about just keeping myself whole. And let me just, you know, say this. I was, I had a swearing in uh, in Washington D.C. in 2019, but then I came to Roxbury two weeks later and had a ceremonial swearing in, and that was important to me because I don't do this work alone. I do it cooperatively as a part of a larger collective, and I had the community take an oath with me too. It was an oath that I wrote in partnership with community leaders and my team, and one of the tenets of that was that I will inform joy because it is an act of resistance too. It's a necessary act of resistance. But I'm amending that because I don't need to do the work of informing joy in order to fortify me to do more work. The joy needn't be about um, the utility of your role in society or in the movement. We need to inform and preserve joy, especially black joy, because One of the reasons why we are demoralized and dehumanized is because there's not enough of our full humanity on full display. We don't even give ourselves permission to demonstrate our full humanity. And so I'm being very intentional about it. And that's everything from, I love poetry. So reading, um, you know, Ardra Lord, uh, Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, um, you know, are some of the people that I revisit the most. Maya Angelou, of course. Um, you know, lighting a candle, something as simple as that. Um, uh, taking a long shower, you know, at night, just, you know, those, so those are the sorts of things. And obviously my family, 
Um, you know, my faith keeps me, you know, covered and also rooted and, and grounded. But the pandemic has been really hard because as an only child, I, I took to movement building and organizing work because I love community. And so the isolation of this and not being able to physically uh, be in community with one another when we need to be connected more than ever before has been hard. You know, I'm not, I'm not exempt from that. You know, it, it has been challenging, but those are some of the ways in which I inform joy. Thank you. And you mentioned a part of being a black woman specifically is the fact that we're not allowed to be ourselves unapologetically. I don't know if you've been following the Gorilla Glue saga on of social course, media. Yeah. I yeah. tweeted about it this morning. Mm -hmm. because I was just, you know, saying that I was so struck by the humor that so many people found it in and I felt nothing but sadness. Right. You know, right. but yes. But no, but and that was the point I was actually going to make the fact that one of our, our colleagues at NBCLX wrote an article and I have the title up here because the title is The Gorilla Glue Saga, Laid Edges and the Trauma of Black Beauty yes. Standards. I read it today. You know, you're perfect. I read because um, uh, um, a constituent of mine, Nina, from East Boston, after mm -hmm. I posted my message, uh, tagged, threaded it for mm -hmm. me to read. Wow. Yeah, and it, it just goes to show, like you said, the the trauma that goes with even black hair and how there are these unrealistic really expectations of what black beauty should look like. You're a year into your journey, well, your public journey with alopecia. How has that journey been for you now that you have been able to be free and open about what you've been going through? Yeah, well, and I appreciate your parsing your words and saying a year into my public journey. Actually, yeah. it's just a year into my journey, period. Mm -hmm. You know, I lost, you know, I, um, this happened in a five week period. Yeah. Um, and so it was uh, abrupt and, and, and very traumatic. Um, and so I'm still finding my way with it, you know, honestly. Um, I don't say that I'll never wear a, a unit. You know, there's some incredible units out there and I certainly miss being in my salon. You know, shout out to Princess's Hair, Hair Palace in, um, in Dorchester and to Samantha and, um, you know, the entire team there. Um, and your Flotus wig. <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. And um and, and I miss um, you know, the the intimacy of my hair being braided and all of those things, you know. Um but so I never I never say never. But right now, just wearing a unit for me does not feel um authentic. Hmm. Um, you know, so this is what feels in alignment with where I'm at in my journey. Um, I have been shocked by how disruptive it is for a lot of people. I guess I shouldn't have been. Um, bald has been normalized for men, not for women. Um, and so it's very disruptive. It challenges people's conventional uh, norms and standards and certainly Eurocentric standards of what is um, acceptable, what is professional, what is pretty. Um, and so some days, you know, the trolls, you know, they do get me down or the unsolicited advice um, or the assumptions about why I'm bald. Um, so some days, you know, are are really hard, you know, just to, to be fully transparent about that. But as I said in my alopecia reveal uh, video, which is the root, shout out to black journalists, you know, black lives matter, black journalists matter. Um, they did an incredible job with that reveal. But what I said in that was that I'm here not just to take up space, to occupy it, but to create it. And so for every day or hour that feels hard, 
um, and, and on the days that the stairs get to be a bit much or, or even the, the commentary. Um, I'm, I think about all of the people who DM me and stop me uh, you know, on the street on the way to votes um, or who have sent emails and written letters about what the representation uh, means for them because there are about 7 million people that are living with alopecia and there are many forms of alopecia. I have alopecia totalis. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to find uh, refuge in the alopecia community and others who can relate um, to what, what it is to, to be on this walk, you know, but you know, I'm doing all right. <laughs> I also follow you on Twitter and I saw the clap back where you said you were basically just trying to get a role in Wakanda and you're just oh, right, yeah. <laughs> I, I know, you know, so hook, hook a sister up, but, <laughs> but, I, but I do want to say I'm grateful, you know, to my, to my husband who, um, reminded me early on that I did not need hair mm -hmm. to wear a crown. Um, and so uh, I, I'm just grateful for him and the, and the support of, you know, so many um, who have made this walk a little bit easier. Right. Yeah. I'm running low on time, so I do have two more questions. Okay. Okay. I'll probably be brief. Okay. Let's go. I know you're part of the squad, right? And when I think of squads, I usually think of group chats. So does the squad have a group chat, one? And if you do, what is your role in it? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Get spicy. <laughs> Okay, that's a great question. But yes, of course we have a group chat. Okay, I figured. And that's, that's all I will say about that, you know? And it's fire. <laughs> okay, what role do you play though? How are you engaged in that group chat? You no, know, we, we all, I mean, I think we all play the same role, which is, you know, it's a place where we confer as, as um, we seek each other's counsel out, you know, as colleagues, we identify opportunities to, to do the work together. Um, but, you know, it's also family. You know, I think Donald Trump and those who, many of those who support him attempted to weaponize our identity um, and attacked us in, in vile ways. Um, you know, Donald Trump with his rhetoric and then later with his policies. But from that weaponizing of our identities, we have forged um, a, a deep sisterhood and, and family. Um, we have kinship because we're aligned in our values um, and in our purpose. And, you know, we talk about our, our pets. We, we talk about our kids. Um, you know, we talk about it all. And, and I certainly would not have been able to survive the last two years, um, given the, the spotlight uh, and the pressure um, without our sisterhood. But as I've said many times before, um, the squad is certainly more than um, a handful of members of Congress. It is anyone doing the work of building a more equitable and just society. And so when you look at the decisive victory in November, the squad is big. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and it's big and growing. And a group chat could be considered a form of self-care anyway, just to throw that out there. You know what? The next time someone asks me that question, I'm going to say that. <laughs> oh. I'm going and, to say that. And we are talking about Black History Month overall. So the yeah. question I have for you is, how do you want to be remembered in future Black History Months for the work that you've done in this country? You can't make that the last question. You're going to have to give oh, me I, I have a follow-up. I do have a follow-up. <laughs> this is what I want to say, not about me. Well, what I want to say is, 
Um, I want people to recognize that although people are quick to celebrate the most iconic contributors of American history, which is what Black history is, um, and, and to uplift those most iconic figures during the month of February, that Black history is not static. It is dynamic. It is all around us. And it is accessible. It is in the Sarah Ann Shaws and the Mel Kings and the Doris Bunties and the Diane Wilkerson's and, you know, may he rest in power and the Bruce Bowlings. It is all around us. Um, and, you know, seek out those conversations with our elders. Learn those, learn those lessons. Um, and, and just don't forget that that history is all around you. It, it's not just something static um, in a book that usually has been um, made into a digestible uh, soundbite um, or sanitized and, and whitewashed. It is um, dynamic and multidimensional. It is local. It is accessible. It is all around you. And so learn that history if you don't know it and then share it because our children should know who Melmia Cass is and, and Ella Baker, um, they should know. So that's what I would ask people to do, a little homework. Yeah, and I appreciate that because you are highlighting, in addition to the work that you're doing, there are other people in Boston specifically that should get a little more light and be honored as well. If you were to end up having a biopic about your life though, who would you want to play in that as you? Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, well, what I will tell you is the celebrities that people have very often felt I favored, okay? okay. Now, some of this is pre-boldness, okay? So, but I have gotten Jennifer Hudson a lot. Oh, okay. Um, I have gotten uh, Jennifer Lewis a lot. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And... Um, and I have gotten Kerry Washington a lot when I was wearing um, weave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, a little quiver thing though. When I had a sentence, people actually think we speak very similarly um, with, with our. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I see that. Yeah. So, so, so those are the three that that I, I've got the most. But I mean, that's I don't know about any kind of biopic. I mean, that's you know. Well, I'm just, look, I'm just following the work, you know, and, and I'll just end here and say, that's what my mother also taught me early on, that in life, there's a difference between your job and your work. Your job is what pays the bills, but your work with the capital W is the work of the upliftment, the advancement, and the betterment um, of society. And so I'm just going to keep following the work and uh, history can determine the rest. Mm -hmm.